This is Make It Human's third episode on climate change. First, I want to start with a story. As many of you remember, in September of 2017, Puerto Rico was hit with its most deadly hurricane in history. What began as a tropical wave swiftly turned into a Category 5 hurricane, and it wasn't until a year later that the storm's devastation in the territory received an official death toll of nearly 3,000. Much of the country was relying on generators for electricity if they had any power at all. But soon after, in October of 2017, Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, had an initial conversation with the governor of Puerto Rico about Tesla bringing a number of solar and battery projects to the territory in various places of high vulnerability, like children's hospital and senior centers. There was no official contract given by Tesla as requested by the Puerto Rican government, but three weeks later, Tesla's solar and batteries were installed in various places, bringing power back in 11 different spots on the island. That sounds to us like the ultimate success story of capital powers being able to act much swifter than any government, American or Puerto Rican, to bring recovery to a devastated area. Our favorite Joe Rogan guest with his wild tweets and wide breadth of projects from PayPal to solving traffic with underground tunnels to selling flamethrowers to the public would come to the rescue with his own company. Let businesses solve problems, some may say. They can act fast, get things back on the right track, and when Puerto Rican hospitals and senior centers are powered by renewable, zero-emission energy, we can chuckle at the inefficiencies of politics to fix any big problem. This tale sits right at the heart of our discussion, an ecological crisis that may well have been provoked and exacerbated by a changing climate here on Earth, and governments responding too slowly, and corporations stepping in and taking their own action, providing terrific PR for them, Fortune did a story on Tesla's project, calling it pure marketing genius. But there was an issue. When these solar panels and batteries were attached to old wiring on the island, the batteries would blow out. This is the story of many of these projects. The existing infrastructure was too weak and little resources were brought in to ensure a long-term solution. And it's important to note that the Puerto Rican island that Tesla brought their quote aid to is Vieques. It's considered the colony of colonies with a long history of being forgotten by their American imperial master. After World War II, the U.S. turned half of the island into a new weapons target range. And as recently as 2000, the Navy killed a local with a test bomb run. Tesla's arrival sparked a cultural change. They no longer felt forgotten by their northern neighbors, only to find that much of these solar panels sit dormant now called solar graveyards. One nurse at a senior center where Tesla attempted to bring power back said, it doesn't work, it never has. Pure marketing genius, taking a hold of the compromised state of this historically marginalized island for good press with little to no plan on keeping up the power that they had promised to provide these people. Now there's no promise that if Puerto Rico's or the US's government were to do the same that they would have nailed it. But a fast-acting corporation doesn't seem to be the solution either. This week, how can we look at the stories that all the different actors are telling us about climate change and what to do about it? How can we parse these narratives for ourselves in whirlwind of greenness being used as good PR and storms like these that a UN scientist panel on climate change give confidence to being a potential product of a warming Earth? is make it human. Now, if you've listened to past episodes, you know we like to talk about the things that may have made humans humans. This week, climate change and you, the ambiguous, complicated, frightening term everyone has mixed feelings about. 
There's a statistics on this view of the issue. In May of last year, Pew Research surveyed Americans on their views of climate change. About half Americans say that the Earth is warming mostly due to human activity. The divide is pretty political. That 18% of conservative Republicans say the Earth is warming because of human activity, while 83% of liberal Democrats think the same. We've all heard about it. We all have an opinion or maybe a fear, but a lot of what we feel may be confusion. Now, boldly, I thought, well, I'll just clear this confusion up with just a couple of podcast episodes, summarize some issues, clarify some concepts, put a human face to the chaotic hairball of noise. So I tried. I tried reading environmental policy papers, ecological research, scientific communication journals, philosophical arguments on what makes up attitudes and actions. It was a lot. It's too many fields of expertise with a new set of noise with bigger vocabulary and terms I was constantly having to look up. It ended up with a feeling like, just tell me what to think. Each group, I found, is telling a different story from a different perspective. They're illuminating challenges unique to them. And you know how much we like to explore stories here on Make It Human. So I thought I might not be able to boil down the fundamentals of all climate science, environmental policy, and why humans act the way they do into a podcast or two. But what I can do is try to tell a few of the stories that emerge from a discussion on climate change. Because whether they like it or not, there are people and groups from different backgrounds, all telling different stories about what climate change means and what there is to do about it. And we could call each of these groups actors. And the story each actor tells comes from some of their perception of an issue, informed maybe by media, by science, by memes, by an economic goal, or a plethora of other things. And these stories have an effect to some degree on the other stories also being told, and on people's behavior and the way they live their life. When we talk about climate change, anthropogenic climate change, we are talking about human behavior. So who's telling a story? Maybe it's formal scientists. Maybe it's the public with their own perceptions as citizens and consumers who are voting and buying things. Maybe it's industry producers of energy, of agriculture, or anyone making anything really. It could be a politician with a certain platform, like Jay Inslee running for president solely on a climate change platform and other politicians jumping on or off of this Green New Deal. It could be an animal species that's dwindling or expanding. It could be an Instagram meme account. It could be a think tank publishing textbook-like accounts of the unrealistic fear around climate change. It could be a conservation group. It could be the media at large, whether alarmist journalists or deniers and everything in between. The story could be even coming from the Earth's temperature. It's a lot of stories to keep straight. How on earth could we ever keep from just becoming paralyzed with inaction? It's too much noise, too much nonsense. Well, we're going to break apart a few key actors, a few key stories, see what they're up to, see what's going on, get a better picture of how these stories affect the way we live. And then if we are given any other story from somewhere else, be it a green marketing campaign, a government policy addressing climate change, an alarmist journalist telling us all the animals will die in 12 years and catastrophe is nigh, we can give it the same sort of critical eye and judge whether the advice they're giving us actually makes sense with what we know about climate change and how these stories function. We can make these stories that we tell about climate change human and maybe, maybe even make climate change a little more human too. We'll begin to look into these stories with three scientists from Cal Poly, each sitting at a different junction with formal science and the environment. In their conversations, we can learn of them as actors in this broad network of looking at and responding to climate change, telling a story through the lens of modern Western science. This scientific perspective itself is an important one for looking at a thing like climate change, because when we talk about climate change, we are talking about real data from the real world. 
And even if you don't believe in such a thing could be, which I often find myself pondering during late nights on my porch, you still end up checking the temperature if today is a good day for a flowy shirt or a sweater before you go outside. So for now, we'll just assume that there's such a thing as a real world out there. So in this real world, we speak of real observations and measurements of people's attitudes of global temperature, of animals and plant species. But it's important to keep in mind that science is still a perspective alongside other perspectives, a well of knowledge that sits beside other wells, like local knowledge, which we'll hear about later, or public sentiments and preferences, or economic goals and objectives, which we could argue about whether it's a science, but that's a can of beans for another episode or more ancient, more traditionally mythological knowledge like religion that many of us have much to do with how we see the world and our place in it. Our stories of anthropogenic climate change is a bit like an elephant being felt by blindfolded humans. Some may be feeling a leg or an ear or a nostril, making observations like, hey, it's pretty wet over here, or I don't know what you're talking about, it's dry and wrinkly. And when we hear all sorts of these stories, even if we can't see, we might start to figure out what this odd, multi-textured creature is. So these scientists will tell us of the things they are digging in, what textures they're feeling, and how that relates to other stories being told about this elephant of our Earth's climate. First, political scientist Dr. Amelia Andrews will tell us a bit about the political dimension of addressing climate change in the U.S. and one psychological approach to doing such a thing. As you will hear her speak of the elephant, listen for the stories of farmers that she speaks of of farmer lobbies and the role they play, particularly in U.S. politics, and how framing problems in certain ways makes us think of our role in the problem differently. I am Dr. Amelia Andrews, um, an assistant professor in the political science department at Cal Poly. My area is basically environmental policy and political psychology. Um, I study issue framing and how you can use issue frames to influence people's environmental attitudes and behaviors. And what is an issue frame? I'm going to try really hard not to like quote like and say it how I would write it. <laughs> <laughs> but they are either verbal or visual cues that you can use to establish what the parameters of a problem area or what a policy object is what have you is about so you're basically teaching people what with an issue frame you're trying to structure how they think about problems um, what the the real issues are at the heart of problems um, and and just how to approach them in general hmm. okay. I guess and so what was the the issue frame that you were working with with the uh, the farmers so uh, this was what I was doing when I um, uh, I worked on this project for like six years um, while I was at Purdue doing my, my uh, PhD work. Um, and it was a grant funded by the USDA um, right when the Waxman-Markey Bill was going through Congress, which is the closest that we've ever come to having federal climate change legislation, which would have created um, a carbon offset program. You are... Um, emitting some kind of a pollution, in this case, um, greenhouse gases, right? Um, you're emitting these greenhouse gases and you are investing in some other technology or what have you um, that will theoretically like take the equivalent amount of greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, that's what the, the, the bill was, was, one of the things the bill was trying to do, was trying to create. And um, they were 
basically you try to do anything with the environment on the federal level and you have to get the farmers on your side because they're an extremely powerful lobby. Um, and so our project was funded to see how can we get farmers to use a practice called no-till that will convert farmland from being a carbon source, so something that will emit um, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, into a carbon sink, something that will take um, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And uh, basically every other <laughs> project that was funded uh, through this grant program was looking for like a, a dollar amount, like how much per acre could you pay farmers to uh, engage in this practice. And we were looking at it just from how you can use more verbal um, appeals to, to get them to want to change their attitudes um, and behaviors. Um, and so what we were doing, we were actually actively looking for what would the most effective frame be. So it's not that we were working with one frame. We were working with a number of different things to try to figure out what actually will work with this population. And what did you find? So um, what we found in general, so we did a lot of like pre-experimental interviews and what have you, and everyone that we were talking to Farmers, conservation specialists, um, people who were um, working in like ag extension and all that kind of stuff. Um, everyone was saying like you have to talk about things in terms of profit, 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 profit. Farmers are businessmen first and that's that. Um, and what we actually found in, in the first part of the project is that that frame's dead, basically. Um, the people who will respond to that kind of a communication have already responded to it. And the people who don't already engage in no-till as a practice um, on their farmland, it actually, hearing that kind of messaging made them more opposed than they already were. With appeals to profit did. With appeals to profit did, yeah. Which was complete, yeah. And just like a bunch of different areas where we were interacting more so with people in the ag world, and so many people in the ag world were just like, no, you're wrong. And it's like, well, okay, this is what the data say. It's one of those things where you have messaging that you can create, and it'll work for a little while, but then like there are people who are left unconvinced. And what are you going to do? Like, Are you going to talk to people in a language that you find convincing that works for you that's yeah. worked for other people or like if you're trying to get like universal change you gotta speak to people in a language that that they understand that that they're convinced by mm -hmm. not just what you're convinced by right that's kind of the main thing that was coming from our project was we have to stop thinking about things just like this one size fits all solution especially for these larger problems where we need not just a majority of people to change their behavior but we need like a universal change in behavior right, right? and so what we actually found and and uh, uh, in, in the second part of the project was if you actually learn a little bit more about the psyche of your, the motivations, purposes, the values of, of your population, in this case farmers, um, and what really speaks to them and who they are as individuals and as kind of a community and you design frames that speak to those underlying values, things that people would never normally consider. So in, in this case, we design frames um, having to do with uh, 
uh, presenting farmers as like that backbone that built America and the effect that they have on the community and as members of a larger community and kind of um, tying the issue to their more altruistic kind of values and sense that that can actually have a really big impact on them because it creates this connection between the issue and their sense of self, their sense of being and why they're doing what they're doing. So you mentioned the farmer lobby, and I think this is an interesting actor in this network that is, I don't know, particularly just lobbyists in general is in, uh, in the U.S. has more of a, I don't know, sway or a role than in a lot of other places. What is, uh, what is a lobbyist and specifically what do farmer lobbyists do? What are their activities? What are they vying for and why are they so powerful? Okay. So lobby groups in general, um, interest groups is, is how we oftentimes think about them in the United States. It right now, it doesn't kind of seem like it because of just the way that, that our, our, political environment is at the moment, but we actually have very weak political parties in the United States. Um, our founders weren't anti-factions. They just didn't want us to be that way. Um, and we, we, it's still like that, even though people are talking like Democrat, Republican. Rah, rah, rah. And you can see that through membership, how oh, easy yeah. it is to be a member of a party. It's oh, just, yeah. You know, it, they're very fluid. They're very, very fluid. Um, and so we have a lot more. The strength of interest groups in the United States is and has always been meant to be stronger than that of political parties. So whereas in other countries, like political parties, like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts would be connected to a political party. You're sponsored by a political party. Mm. That's not how it is in the U.S., right? So um, our interest groups are basically just groups of individuals. They're institutionalized groups of individuals that have a common set of goals or a common set of interests that they are trying to achieve. Um, they're institutionalized. They register with the government to be able to to operate and what have you um, and they oftentimes are the people who are drafting legislation um, they're going and they're interacting with congress people and and people on the city levels you know all the way up through um, and they're just trying to achieve different sets of goals um, the agricultural lobby is one of the strongest lobbies in the united states um, and Part of the reason is just that agriculture influences every dimension of our life. Hmm. Even the clothes we wear is influenced by agriculture, right? right? Um, and basically what the agriculture lobbies do, I mean, they, like I said, they write legislation. They interact with different Congress people and their staffs and what have you. And, and they're advocating for the interests of their group. Their lobby, and there, there, there isn't just one necessarily. There's multiple different, different um, agricultural organizations that consist of the agricultural lobby. But we talk about it in kind of a more an umbrella term. Next, we have Dr. John Perrine, a field ecologist and conservation biologist, who tells us of the many, many stories to be found in nature. Every physical system and every animal telling its tale of response to its environment with its very life. Listen particularly for the story of science itself. What do we do with it when a central assumption of this way of seeing the world is baked in with an amount of uncertainty, and how this doesn't necessitate a failure to act in crucial moments? 
My name is John Perrine. I'm a professor of biology here at Cal Poly. Uh, my background is principally in field ecology of mammals. Uh, I teach wildlife management, conservation biology, wildlife ecology, and the natural history of mammals. Um, what is your understanding of the use of the precautionary principle in uh, American policymaking regarding whether it's climate change or conservation, um, land protection? It's very difficult to implement. It's one of those things that, that, you know, in a hypothetical, people say, sure, you know, let's, let's talk about that. Let's try to make that happen. Um, and then when push comes to shove, it's very diff difficult. I mean, real-world policies entail costs and benefits. And changing the status quo, again, is going to benefit some people, and it's going to harm other people. And that's going to happen in any political regime. It'll happen in a democracy. It can happen in an autocracy. And, and the people who have power to influence the system tend to want to influence the system in a way that will benefit them. And I don't think that's surprising. That, that I think that would kind of consider that human nature. So precautionary principle and assuming a worst-case scenario tends to be opposed by people who think you're... you're um, you're being overly dramatic. You're you're being overly pessimistic. Um, you know, why can't we have pet alligators in California? It's fine. It's too cold for them to survive here. And I can make money selling alligators to people in pet shops. So why can't we do that? And you go, well, it's just not a very good idea. And what if alligators got out? And what if we were wrong? And they did establish we had free-roaming alligators that would not be good, right? And, and 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 so you're in this sort of realm of well, can you prove that it won't be good? And you go, well, where's the, where's our default? Where where's our, our our default situation in terms of do I do I have to prove that it's going to be bad if alligators get out, or do you have to prove that there's no risk of alligators being out? And so the precautionary principle changes the burden of proof. Um, for people advocating a policy to say, show me it's not going to be harmful, as opposed to, oh, whoops, you know, thought it wasn't going to be a problem, turned out it was, guess we can't put that cat back in the bag. Um, so think, and it's usually a good idea to think, what if we're wrong? Yeah. What is the worst that could happen, right? Is that being, that lends itself to being labeled alarmist because it inherently starts with, what's the worst that could happen? You mentioned the, the complex systems and how when you have these different factors that are affecting variables in, in an ecosystem and then an ecosystem um, that variable will affect different things in different ways and you just have these either compounding effects that make what we thought was a little issue a much bigger issue or then you have um, one variable that affects two things in ways that seem counter-reactive counter and they'll, they'll cancel each other out. Um, what what is the what what does that look like from a uh, in your work that you've you've seen in in studying um, mammal m mammal ecology? Right. Um, you have changes in in what's called the physical system, the temperature of the air, the temperature of the water, and then and that itself has resiliencies and feedback processes uh, that can happen. And they're very complicated. Um, 
for example, if you have more solar radiation coming in, you have more evaporation. If you have more evaporation, you might have more clouds. And if you have more clouds, that's going to tend to block solar radiation. And so that's going to be a way, it's going to be what's called a negative feedback, um, which is going to tend to counteract the original stress. Um, and it'll and it'll bring you back into equi equilibrium. It works kind of like a thermostat. So if it gets too hot, then you get more clouds. That blocks the sun. It cools the system back down. So that's a negative feedback process, like, like a thermostat. And if your house is too cold, it turns the heater on. So that tends to create stability. But then there's positive feedback processes. Positive feedback process is something like uh, what's known as the reflectivity, the albedo of the environment. And so ice tends to be white. And it's white because it's reflecting light as opposed to absorbing light. And so as ice layers melt and get replaced with Earth, Earth is darker. And it tends to absorb rather than reflect. And so it's going to make the ground even warmer. So positive feedback is a, a snowball effect in which it builds on itself. And those are destabilizing. Both of those are what's called the physical science. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, has a whole working group on trying to understand much more complicated systems like um, atmospheric and oceanic circulation. The way heat is transferred uh, on our planet is, is predominantly through oceanic and atmospheric circulation, the jet stream and major currents and things like that. What happens if those change? And I don't think we really, you know, the general person, and I certainly don't understand the, the, the fundamental difference that might happen in our climate systems if those heat movement engines at the planetary level, if they change. If I take a pencil and I push it in one direction, I can feel reasonably confident where that pencil is going to end up. But if you have that pencil hooked into a bunch of other things with positive and negative feedback processes that are come back and affect that pencil and push it back against my hand, maybe push it back from before where we even started. And so they're, they're very complicated and very dynamic. It's really hard uh, at the level of ecosystems to try to figure out what's going to happen with these systems. And they might be more resilient, you know, at any, um, any given system m might be more resilient. The question is not whether it's good or bad. The question is, is that something we really want to do? Or is that, some, is, that, is that a place we really want to go? Or would it be smart to curtail our actions if we can and say, yeah, I don't really want to end up in this uncharted territory ecologically or sociologically what would happen if we didn't how plausible is it how much of an inconvenience is it to change our behavior such that we're less likely to get into this unknown future state mm -hmm. that's kind of scary one thing i did want to talk about um or, or just touch base with is to take uncertainty how do, how do we treat uncertainty how do we think about uncertainty and how do we think about risk and uncertainty and and it is possible for people to if a scientist says well i'm not 100 percent sure of our outcome that can be twisted and misinterpreted oh you really have no idea what you're doing right. no i have great idea what i'm doing and that's why i'm able to say with confidence that i don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be and it's almost like a doctor, right? If you go in with cancer 
And the doctor's like, I don't know exactly what your outcome is going to be. I know what the average outcome is going to be. And I can give you a likely prognosis, but you might go into spontaneous remission. Or your personal experience might be very different from the average. And that's someone who has good command of the system and their knowledge admitting that they don't know everything. But that can be twisted into, oh, scientists admit they don't know what's going on. Well, that's not actually what that means. The science scientists know what's going on. They're just not exactly sure exactly how it's going to end up. And so creating uncertainty um, and saying, well, we need to study this more and we need to study this more before we understand it, before we take any drastic policy steps mm-hmm. can basically be used as a strategy to not ever take any policy steps. You know, until you're 100% sure, you're never going to do anything. Well, that's a very high bar, and right, I just happened to see um, laying out on a table this this big report, um, big, very professional, glossy, looks scientific, put out by an organization that looks almost exactly like the IPCC, but it's right. not the IPCC. It's not the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the NIPCC, the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change. Wow. Yes which is largely an advocacy organization trying to create doubt and prevent policy action. It looks like a textbook. And it's delivered free to educators. Wow, interesting. And so many of us got books from this organization. By a who? lot of teachers got, got sent this, and you know, the truth about climate science etc etc and it all looks very glossy um, and it is a selective interpretation of the science it's not the science it's a misrepresentation of the science to either say "Mm, really there's no climate change or really scientists have no idea right and so this is an example of the kind of thing that scientists are fighting against which is basically a public relations sort of the the tobacco industry scientist mm-hmm. um, approach of can we just create enough confusion um, and enough doubt that will prevent policy actions from happening and so if you're a scientist and this has all gotten very controversial it's all gotten very dramatic um, most scientists are not advocates uh, most scientists are very uncomfortable with the advocacy uh, side of the equation. They would rather not. They would rather write their little papers and, 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 and let the advocates handle the advocacy. And I, you know, I will explain the science to you, but then you know, the advocacy organization is the one that's going to go do lobbying. Scientists don't like to do lobbying. They don't want to look like they have a hidden agenda. Mm-hmm. It's not like scientists have stock in solar energy companies or something like that like we're trying to twist the debate so that we personally profit from it and most scientists are very i mean all a scientist has is her credibility because most people can't go out and redo the science they just have to take your word for it and and so if your credibility is brought into question then the entire conversation starts to fall apart. And so when you have sort of a coordinated effort to say, oh, you can't really trust the scientists. Well, then, we can't, then we can't move forward. And it's like saying you can't trust your doctor. Yeah. Well, if you can't trust your doctor, then what are you going to do? No. 
are the scientists right about everything? Well, no, but the scientists will be the first one to tell you that they're not right about everything, right? And just like this is our current understanding. This is what we think is going to happen. And that's why that language is, you know, we're, that's in the IPCC report. You know, we, we have very high confidence, you know, based on our current understanding right. of how clouds form and atmospheric circulation and these physical processes of the natural environment. This is what we think is going to happen. Right. And so to some extent, it's like, well, policymakers, this is what you asked us to do. You asked us, what does the science say and what does it mean and what's likely to happen? And this is us telling you to the best of our ability. They may have personal beliefs about what the policy changes should be, but they're not advocates. They're not, they're not engaged in lobbying. Right in terms of directly changing policy in that way because number one they may not have time you know we're working for a living it's not like there's big bucks you know in this work um and number two they i think they really feel like they're going to be accused of advocacy it, it is is almost a slur in scientific circles and really what advocacy means is that you have a predetermined position that you want to see implemented and so the evidence that supports that position, you will bring it into play. Right. And the evidence that uh, is contrary to that position, you will ignore it or challenge it. Mm -hmm. Our third scientist is Greg Brown, the social scientist of the environment. He tells us about how to harness local knowledge, the preferences and wisdom that you and me, the locals, have about our own communities, and using it in policy for the environment. Look for the way he tells the story of the public as a viable and important one in decision-making, and how it has historically interacted with larger systems of industry producers and our own government. This is Greg Brown. I'm a professor of, of uh, uh, environmental studies and natural resource management at uh, Cal Poly University. Uh, I did my bachelor's degree at Northern Arizona University in history. Uh, I have a master's degree in business also from Northern Arizona University. Uh, I have a, another bachelor's degree in computer information systems, <laughs> uh, also from uh, Northern Arizona University. And I have a PhD in environmental policy and planning from the University of Idaho. Wow, that's broad, uh, a broad. Yeah, uh, I consider myself probably foremost a social scientist hmm. studying um, uh, environmental sustainability from a social perspective. So I would love to discuss your ideas regarding uh, public participation and how that fits into your work regarding um, env environmental participation, mm -hmm. environmental response. Sure. What does that look like? Well, when we, when we take the concept of sustainability, which I'm not a big fan of, um, we, we look at the traditional three bubbles, if you will, or intersection of, of sustainability, which is, of course, uh, ecological or environmental sustainability, social uh, acceptability and economic viability. When we talk about sustainable systems, they really need to work for people. In other words, they need to provide economic return. They need to be socially acceptable. You can't ask uh, people to go against their cultural behavioral norms uh, to protect the environment. And finally, what you propose to do in the environment has to work within the, within the natural systems and natural contexts. So public participation is a a set of mechanisms by which we can gauge these actions and, and ultimately determine whether they're going to be successful or not. Hmm. Because what we know is that, for example, 
let's take the classic example of parks and protected areas. Uh, some models of par parks and protected areas uh, treat these as, as uh, reserves that people don't inhabit, that they're off limits, that, uh, that they're really um, not for the local people per se, but for outsiders. But what we know is that conservation works best when local people fully buy into conservation and, and are vested in the outcome hmm. of, of protecting those areas. So, so that's what I mean by social acceptability. You have to come up with solutions or options that, that uh, uh, the local people can buy into, and, and they'll have a much better chance of implementing um, those, those policies. And, and what we do in, in, in that research is we ask people to tell us um, what they value about a particular place hmm. and what sorts of preferences they have for the future of that place. So if we take a city like San Luis Obispo, which has choices regarding new housing, where we put commercial development, where we put bike lanes, um, who should make those choices? Typically, we rely on, quote, experts, planning officials, to, to tell us, well, this is a good place for development or this isn't. So participatory mapping is a mechanism by which you can get beyond the expert model and you can get the local knowledge and local community involved in mapping places that, number one, are important to them. Those are the places we need to protect. And number two, where they think changes are acceptable or not. Hmm. Some, place, some land uses are going to be acceptable uh, to the public and some aren't. Oh. So expert knowledge is essentially book knowledge or knowledge through education, but local knowledge is really lived experience. Mm -hmm. And you have people who have lived here 20 years, 30 years, they know the city, they know the community, and that sort of knowledge is not elevated to the same stature as, as the expert knowledge. It's, hmm. it's, it's different. Uh, and I'm, my view is that we need uh, both expert knowledge, that's important, but we often, um, we need more local knowledge, as as I, I see it as a check and balance on expert knowledge. Um, you mentioned sustainability as a term that you are that you try and mm. do you try to avoid or right. try and I don't know. Well, why is that? Well, sustainability has become one of these classic words in green what what's called greenwashing, mm -hmm. and that is to uh, to 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 appear to be supportive of 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 environmental, wise environmental choices, corporations have taken this term and tried to, if you will, spin their practices to, to make themselves look more favorable, to, to create goodwill. Uh, the reality is um, sustainability is one of those terms I don't allow my students to use hmm. unless they can answer three questions. What is, what is it specifically you are sustaining? For how long are you going to sustain it? And in what condition? Are you going to sustain it? So unless you are specific and give a time and a condition, then the word is practically meaningless. It just becomes a, uh, a word, a marketing word, as opposed to a, a call to action. Hmm. Working with uh, sources of local knowledge, public, mm -hmm. public groups, um, just the public at large, um, and that also sounds like you're working with local policymakers um, in and how that they're incorporating that uh, that source of local knowledge into their policy process. What does what is working with those actors like? What is it like working with um, 
the public getting their get, letting them feel trusted um, or that you, that you can be trusted in that um, their information and their their perspective is being valued. Um, what is it like working with those local mm. policymakers? Well, the issue here is that um, there is there you, you hit it there, there is a trust gap here, and um, we can collect information, we can consult with the public. Uh, honestly, um, the politicians, the local politicians, um, are not neutral in this. They're not neutral servants of the people. It's uh, most of our systems are, are not democratic, except maybe uh, symbolically. Hmm. Uh, we have a we have a system in which you know relatively few interests uh, control a, a, a lot of the large decisions, and that extends everything from local to national. Uh, so when I do participatory mapping studies, uh, generally there's resistance. You would think government would be interested in in what people would have to say, but it's really they aren't. Hmm. And why aren't they? Because it is going to challenge most likely the status quo. And it's going to challenge the existing power structures. And uh, people, honestly, people, uh, the, the local politicians um, sort of fear the people because they do represent a power source that 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 is uncontrollable. Hmm. OK, uh, so when I do participatory mapping studies, the interesting thing is the resistance comes from local government. The resistance come resistance comes from industry and the resistance comes from environmental organizations. What, why? What's going on there? It's because participatory mapping rep is revolutionary in the sense that it seeks to potentially um, redistribute power from, from existing sources. If, if a local developer, if the local government uh, supports a local developer building a huge subdivision, um, that's not something um, that uh, the, the local government wants to hear, certainly not something industry wants to hear. Uh, so, or, or the, the local, you know, the property developer. So uh, saying, well, let's, if I were to say, well, let's, instead of, uh, instead of relying on the experts, what if we allow the people to design their community? That is potentially threatening to the existing power structure because everyone's vested in, in this, this economic growth uh, within the community. And if the community said, let's, Let's go slow. Let's have steady state. Let's not do anything that's going to uh, create large disruptions. That's not going to be a message that's going to be well received in 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 most most communities hmm. because most communities aren't democratic. They do represent local local power, local political power. Yeah. Have you seen any industry effort to move in the direction of? Um, sensible response to climate change that doesn't look like greenwashing uh we should focus on the action not necessarily act the actor one needs to ask what are the motivations behind their actions uh and in many cases corporates corporations motivations have simply been to stave off liability or to create goodwill to sell more products i don't think anyone really believes uh that corporations uh, or many of them do this out of a sense of social responsibility. <laughs> and in fact, uh, some would say, some have said that 
corporations being socially respons responsible is actually irresponsible financially because they have a fiduciary duty to their to their shareholders. Here's here's the state of play today: is that uh, for all these changes that are going on with all the large growth in alternative uh, energy sources, we, uh, by all accounting for last year, um, had record levels of carbon emissions hmm. uh, based on energy use. So we're, 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 we're doing all these changes uh, to try to promote uh, greener energy, but the reality is we're still putting as much or more emissions into the atmosphere than we ever have. Hmm. And so this, this is a problem, this is a challenge. Right, well, Dr. Brown, Thank you so much. Thank you. After the interview, he felt compelled enough to tell me what he thought the best thing for individuals to do as far as action in response to climate change. And from his view, it was a plant-based diet. Everybody should be vegetarians. Now, I know we've recently heard on Fox News that the Green New Deal is trying to take away our hamburgers. And we're not sure that is exactly true, but... It seems to Dr. Brown that a plant-based diet is probably the best way about, for an individual at least, to address their own concerns about climate change. Now one shared insight I found from my conversations with these three was that governmental workings aren't quite what they seem. Dr. Andrews spoke of parties not being really what political, where political action comes from here in the U.S. Dr. Perrine spoke of increased role of money in politics. It just makes me cringe when I listen to the radio and we just had, you know, the quarterly reports of, say, presidential candidates and, and how much money they've raised. And, you know, I kind of want to raise my hand and say, you know, you realize that dollars are not votes. You think about the other things that we could do in our society with three quarters of a billion dollars every two years. Right. I mean, it is, a, it is a lot of money going into influence a process. And Dr. Bohr shared how in working with local knowledge, our democratic systems don't seem as democratic as they let on. I wasn't, I was left not sure what to do with all this. Me as an individual taking my small individual actions of voting, buying, and the like. But who's running the show here? So I thought I had to talk to someone in the trenches of local politics, a part of the policy and creating action in our town. It turns out that the city of Slow has a sustainability manager, and his name is Chris Reed, and he is a delightful guy. Here's another actor in the web of climate change response, a city official who truly seems interested in positive change at a local level, and concerned about the failure of a national and global response to such a large issue. Yeah, so my name is Chris Reed. I'm the sustainability manager at the city of San Luis Obispo, and I manage all of our climate action programs and, and policies and assist with projects. And so my day-to-day -day is, is a couple of things. One, it's actually leading projects myself. So um, leading as, as part of a team, our climate action plan update, uh, coordinating on, uh, we, we recently joined Monterey Bay Community Power, which is a community choice energy program. So we're getting ready to launch that in January of next year. So leading coordination on that and making sure enrollment goes seamlessly. And then also convening staff from throughout the agency and supporting them on sustainability initiatives, whether that's um, helping staff operate zero waste events or whether it's like we just got out of a meeting where we're talking through a power purchase agreement to have about two megawatts of solar installed on various projects throughout the city. So that, wow. everything in between. Sweet. 
foundation of what we're working on right now. Last September, city council directed us to update our climate action plan to try to course towards carbon neutrality by 2035. So that's the most ambitious reduction target in the entire country, wow. one of the most in the world for a, a community. And so right now we're really just trying to understand what that means in terms of um, what do, over the next 16 years, what are the sort of um, various approaches we can take to get to carbon neutrality or approach carbon neutrality. And then really specifically today and in the next two to three to four years, what are the things we need to do to lay a foundation so we can start to move at a scale and speed required to achieve those, those uh, ambitions? Wow, that's, that's wild. <laughs> so we joined a, a, something called a Community, Choi Community Choice Aggregator. Mm -hmm. um, there are CCAs, you might have heard that acronym around. So essentially what a CCA does is it uh, purchases or procures electricity on behalf of its customers. So right now, uh, if you live in San Luis Obispo and you look at your PG&E bill, you'll see a couple of line items. One is for transmission and distribution. So what you're paying for there is for PG&E to go out and um, build transmission lines and distribution lines and make sure that all works to bring the uh, electrons to you, so to speak. The other line item is around procurement. So what you're paying PG&E to do there is to go out and talk to a, a solar farm out in the Central Valley or a natural gas farm or to maintain Diablo and buy electricity on your behalf so that mm -hmm. when you turn the switch on, they're ready for you, <laughs> right? Um, and so what this does is it actually... Uh, Monterey Bay Community Power is a, is a local government. It's a combination of other local governments called a Joint Powers Authority. What this local government does is it takes over that function. It purchases, procures electricity on behalf of residents and businesses. So that means that we essentially have a say in where our electricity comes from. Right. And instead of there being profits that go out to shareholders, we retain those all internally to invest in energy programs so that we can continue to have economic development locally while also reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. So starting in 2020, 100% of our portfolio will be carbon-free. So wow. whenever you, you know, watch a too long episode uh, of Game of Thrones, like the energy that you use there will be carbon-free. Right. And is this a trend in other places? You said this slow has the most ambitious carbon neutrality goal, 2036? 2035, 2035, yeah. 2035, yeah. Um, is this a trend that other towns, is this a position that other that other cities yeah. have? Yeah, I think more and more we're starting to see it become uh, a trend, particularly uh, as the federal government takes no responsibility right. when, it, when it needs to at probably one of the most critical times in human history for the federal for federal agencies and for our federal government and federal governments throughout the world to step up and actually make meaningful reductions. And in absence of that, it's up to states and cities to take leadership roles. And we know that without the federal government, it'll be very hard to get there. But we can do in the meantime is to uh, you know collaborate and cooperate across cities and across states and really continue to innovate and continue to be in a position to have deep decarbonization over time. So. You know, we're members of a group called Green Cities California. It's about 15 cities in California that have my you know, equivalent positions and yeah. we collaborate. Um, but there's certainly sustainability managers and, and chief sustainability officers and sustainability coordinators in dozens and dozens of California cities. Uh, we're also members of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. So my position uh, and hire exists all throughout North America um, and all throughout the world. In fact, we were just invited to represent San Luis Obispo at the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance meeting in Helsinki, Finland uh, next week. Wow. And so, you know, we'll be able to meet with our equivalents from some of the major 
um, metropolitan areas of the world that all have deep decarbonization ambitions. And so, and what what other um, what other projects is the city looking to to um, take on in the next I don't know five ten years going towards that? Sure. Uh, so carbon neutral goal. We see exa how we exactly get there is still to be determined. We're going to be planning throughout this year, and we're going to adopt our uh, carbon neutral city plan in December. So we're still learning that a bit, but certainly. Um, you know, we, we have a general framework for how this will work. So it all starts with carbon neutral or carbon free electricity. So that's where we'll have starting in 2020. Once we have that, then we start to fuel switch away from fossil fuel combustion. So right now we're developing uh, or we're working on uh, proposing building code alternatives or amendments for our city council to consider later this fall that would um, either require or heavily incentivize all electric new development. So if you build a new building, and we have carbon-free electricity, and we want to be carbon neutral, that new building should only run on electricity, right? Yeah. And since we've had these incredible advances in electrical appliances, we know that you can do that in really, really efficient ways and have really, really high-quality indoor both air environments as well as just high you know, quality of life. So, um, But we also know that transportation is our biggest emission source. So. Right. Uh, it's also the toughest nut to crack, so to speak. It's also one where throughout the state we're seeing our emissions go down everywhere or, or in most of our sectors, but in transportation. And so, you know, trying to think through what we do there, we have really um, strong policy around what percentage of all of our trips in the city you want to see come from walking and biking and bus. And we're continuing to try to invest to, to move that direction. We have award-winning transit and we're continuing to invest in bicycle infrastructure, looking into what a bike share program might look like, et cetera. And so that's how we're trying to get people out of their cars and to experience the city again at the human level, um, really trying to focus on zero waste. And so uh, there's just a new green waste facility that was opened out by the airport. Uh, which takes all of our green waste and turns it into high quality compost and clean electricity. Yeah, so wow. it's really incredible. Um, you know, the, um, so I'm trying to go through the list. I think they're <laughs> getting there. And then the final one is really looking at what's called sequestration or negative emissions. And so you talked earlier, or we, we were chatting before we started recording about um, no-till farming practices, right? There's a whole bunch of other what's called regenerative agricultural practices that can actually store carbon in the soil. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a bunch of rangeland that we own as part of our green belt and open spaces. And so there's some initial research um, that looks like that if we manage that in certain ways, we can actually store carbon uh, in that rangeland and in those open spaces in a rate higher than if we didn't manage it in those ways. So starting to think about like what is negative emissions or what do what does sequestration look like in the in the context of a of what a community, a single city can do? And then and then more broadly and perhaps a, as a region, what can we do? So that's what we're working on right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super curious. I think the transportation one is huge because mm -hmm. so much of it is baked into like a a local culture, specifically yeah. in like Southern California. Everybody just mm -hmm. the car is how we yeah. move from place to place. And when I talk to, like, I've talked to my roommates, some of them and other other people, and they're like, oh, like, like why don't you bike? Like, you live a mile from school, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And it's like, oh, it's like, it is way too dangerous. Yeah. Like, I cannot, like, like, we had a, one of our roommates died like a year and a half ago on his bike yeah. on the roads. It's just a crazy, a crazy thing. So what is, have you, is there any sort of, um, I don't know, exploration of, why like asking the the community why it is that people aren't on their bikes why it is that yeah. the cars are the 
the common currency of transportation. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things that just make this really hard. First, um, cars are really convenient, right? <laughs> um, and the externalities yeah. or the cost of driving those to our environment aren't really, uh, we don't pay for those at the pump or through our insurance or through other things, right? So it's- Absolutely. The impacts aren't fully realized by us. And so it's actually a pretty cheap way to get around too as a result of that. There's some other challenges around like transit, for example. You know, we're, we're a small city, 40, 45,000, something like that. And we have transit service levels that far exceed what other small cities have. And yet, um, to be transformational, I think we aspire to have it be even better. But the funding required to achieve that is, is astronomical. And so figuring out smart or uh, clever ways to, to achieve that is, is the way to go. To your point around safety and perceived safety, I think that's really where our investment in bicycle infrastructure comes in. Yeah. To be able to, um, I mean, I think about my dad who rode across the Las Vegas Valley to work um, in the, like the late 80s, early 90s, when there were no bikes, uh, bicycle infrastructure at all, and how many times he got hit by cars and broken hip, broken knee, broken ankle, you know, just everything. Yeah. And, and like, because he didn't have protections. But then we think about places like Stockholm and um, Boulder, Amsterdam. Amsterdam, where the bikes are through the roof. And you actually see a sort of dip in the number of fatalities, a dip in the number of bicycle a accidents because it's so normalized and because right. the built environment is so centered on that human scale and therefore the vehicle bike interaction is so much less dangerous. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's on us to continue to invest in bicycle infrastructure to make folks feel safe and to actually make them safer as well as continuing to work in the urban form in a way that that create you know increases human scale experience. It's it's a very hard problem though. Chris had such a different take of the stories we so often hear of the role of you and me, locals, citizens, consumers, and how we're supposed to take on response to a changing climate. If I see myself as having actions going along with the things I espouse as real in the world and some degree important to me, I should be performing some set of behaviors, living what I think I know. If I believe the mail's going to come, I'm going to go out and get it. If I believe a check is going to come from my workplace, I'm going to go spend accordingly. If I think a certain set of behaviors is important to mitigating negative outcomes of those behaviors, I should adjust those behaviors. But Chris saw the city as playing an important role in creating a world from the story he knew about the way that a city should be powered by looking for power options that were carbon-free and carbon-neutral. His connection with the community did not involve delivering a certain set of individual behaviors for the city dwellers to follow, although we do get those letters from our energy providers asking to slow our roll in the evenings when we just want to light up the house. Chris worked with city organizing groups like the Slow Climate Coalition, who provide the city with valuable information about local businesses and getting community input on climate action ideas. <laughs> it's on their website right freaking now. I have another note on energy, about those letters we get, and the stuff that we use to run our Nutribullets, our fridges, and charge all our whatsits. The number one emitter in the U.S. of greenhouse gases is transportation. That's you and me driving around in our Fords and our Accords, taking flights, moving goods around. The second is electricity. The big guy making all the CO2 is coal. We all know about coal, but it's probably bad, and for whatever reason our president keeps harping on clean coal or something. Regardless, coal accounts for almost 70% of the emissions from the electricity sector, but only provides 30% of the electricity. Obviously, this is not good. As of 2015, the breakdown of electricity in California was 57% from natural gas. A lot of that, you know, you gotta frack it. 3% is from nuclear. 18% is from hydro. 
9% from solar, 8% from wind, and a mere 0.01% from coal. That's a great job, California. Note on May 10th, one of the largest coal producers in the U.S., Cloud Peak Energy, had declared bankruptcy. In their filing, it revealed contributions to many think tanks and interest groups who dismiss climate science, attack environmental groups, and have written template legislation for repealing regulations on coal plants. One group they gave to was called Crossroads GPS, which gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republican politicians in 2010 and 2012 races. So we've heard the stories of formal science and how it interacts with industry and with politics, and we've gotten a bit into how certain stories use the public as a source of knowledge. So, what is the story of the public? Who are they? Can they be spoken of as one big mass? The public thinks this, or the public doesn't do enough of that. Well, it turns out we do. There's a good amount of data collected on these folks. Only 13% said that the federal government is doing too much to reduce the effects of global climate change, and a mere 8% said that they are doing too much to protect air quality, with 64% said that they are doing too little. It seems Americans, on the whole, are interested in clean air. But it's hard to look at the data and not acknowledge a serious partisan divide. Only 26% of conservative Republicans think the federal government is doing too little to protect air quality, while a whopping 89% of liberal Democrats say the same, with moderate Democrats and Republicans both leaning towards too little. These findings bring us back to energy, which is hard to avoid when you're talking about climate change. While both Democrats and Republicans support developing renewable energy, there is a serious divide over further developing fossil fuels like coal mining, fracking, and offshore drilling. Let's take coal mining, for example. We've already mentioned that while it produces around 30% of the energy in the U.S., it produces over 70% of emissions from electricity. I'm going to make a normative judgment and say coal bad. Now, 70% of conservative Republicans support expanding coal mining, with only 13% of liberal Democrats saying the same. Well, we collected our own data of one set of the public. Now, they were just Cal Poly students. Of course, it's not a perfect encapsulation of the perceptions of the whole of the public, but it's a good gauge of perceptions of young people looking to find jobs in industry in the near future. That's Cal Poly's whole thing, right? Learn by doing. Get a job, pay off your debt. Now, in our data of Cal Poly students through student interviews on campus, there was the recognition of an issue. We asked people how they rate how serious climate change is on a scale of 1 to 7, and nobody gave a score later lower than a 4, and 83% gave a score of 5 or higher. Now, it seems that the more someone knows or their own value evaluation of their knowledge of climate change does not correspond with people seeing the issue as more serious, nor does how they rate their knowledge connect with how much they think of the issue, or at least how much they perceive they think of the issue. It seems that as students here, we have our knowledge, and we have how much we think about the climate, and we have how serious we think climate change is. And all those are pretty disconnected thoughts. So is giving someone more information on the issue going to change how they see it or change their actions? Well, maybe not. So from what Dr. Andrew Andrews told us about issue framing, it seems that getting people to adopt certain actions is about framing, about getting people to connect the story they tell themselves about themselves as intersecting with a certain set of behaviors. Maybe that's seeing riding my bike around more, not as me being a lean green dude in Birkenstocks, but as a person who is busy but trying to exercise more because I believe in my own health. 
Or maybe as a local business owner, I want to adopt best practices for energy use in my space and conserve at certain hours, not as trying to fulfill some ambiguous goal of sustainability, but as someone who, as the backbone of America's economy, fulfilling the dream that so many set out to achieve, and wanting to be a leader in taking care of the resources that allow my business to exist. As far as proposed solutions, so many students said being aware was the most important thing to do. Um, I think just being aware. I think just being aware. I think like being aware of your carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. uh, just being aware of the okay. you know, carbon footprint of everything. Just like being aware in general of like mm -hmm. what your actions. Mm -hmm. First awareness of just what they're doing. Being super aware of like the things that you're buying in like the largest scale. So what does this even mean, being aware? This left us with so many questions about what people meant by this, and if they even meant it at all. Do people really want more information on how to live? Are we looking for a new story to be told about our lives and the planet? Or were we just supposed to be aware of what we use as we go through the day? How many times we're at the pump or consuming superfluous new goods? Or how often we eat meat? This seems exhausting, even if they are all important. What was being aware? Another point of confusion we found was when we asked about the perceptions of how environmentally sustainable Cal Poly is. And students talked about visible issues. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed is just the use of the three compartment um, trash cans. I think I'd like to see reducing packaging on food on campus. I think single-use plastics can be reduced because that's kind of an easy one. One of the posts is trying to ban um, plastic whatever. I just see like recycling bins and stuff. We were here when they changed all the bins. Recycling bins around. <laughs> to see, but, but yeah, I don't, I'm not... I guess I'm not familiar with it. Less plastics on campus kind of thing. I know campus dining, there's a lot of plastics used. Students talked of seeing too much trash, single-use plastics, there weren't enough reusables. They spoke of the most public things to us with the nearest environmental association. Full trash cans, extra waste, straws and the like. The things you can take a photo of, create a meme with, and what you so often hear on the news with bag bands and straw bands. Now there's a word for this in psychology. It's called the availability heuristic. I guess it's two words. It's basically a mental sieve through which we filter and judge the world, leaning towards predictable biases, observations about the world based on what we think fits best based on our nearest experiences. Psychologists say it's not just us peons that are subject to this. Even researchers are often guilty of the availability heuristic in their own science. Now this mental filter, this availability heuristic, keeps us focused on what we are exposed to from the media and from the public. Asking about sustainability of a school like Cal Poly leads judgments to the visible. Filled trash cans and packaging, not deeper issues that may be present. Not something like where Cal Poly's endowment is invested, perhaps in large energy firms or fossil fuel providers that are caught up in the 200 some odd million dollars of the Cal Poly endowment. I interviewed a professor in the environmental engineering department, and at the end of the interview, she said not to include anything that I thought might get her fired. I asked her what she meant. She said fossil fuels pretty heavily invested in Cal Poly. Having professors speak out against them publicly could be problematic, even for her, an assistant professor in the engineering program. This was a serious point of interest for us. Where is Cal Poly investing? It took quite a bit of work to find out. First. We looked at the Cal Poly Foundation financial statements, which has details about 
button that accept the endowment. Then I had to figure out what I was even supposed to look at. It's a long PDF, 48 pages of charts and spreadsheets. I asked my roommate what all this meant. My name's Andrew Graffio. Um, I'm a fourth year business administration student concentrating in finance with a minor in statistics. And uh, I recently just finished up being the president of the finance club. Now let's take a trip to finance land real fast. Another actor that has somehow been swept down the rabbit hole of climate change. Equity funds and bond funds are two different types of mutual funds. It's a way of investing that isn't directly investing in a company, but a bunch of pieces of companies lumped together. These equity funds are made of stocks, a bunch of little slices of companies all lumped together and managed by a manager, or so they call them. Nice thing about finance is they don't really try to hide the meaning behind a lot of different things. Um, sometimes they do, but if they do, it usually means that they don't think their work is that hard and they're trying to cover it up with a bunch of fancy terms. While bonds are a bunch of chunks of debt of companies that you can buy and are managed by, say it with me, a manager. So stay with me, trying to figure out what all these terms meant nearly bored me to tears too. So on the 2018 financial report for the Cal, Cal Poly Endowment, which is all publicly available stuff, there are these line items for amounts in equity funds and bond funds. Now, of course, it's not going to say investments in oil, coal, and dirty air stuff, $1 million, although that would be helpful. It didn't list who was managing the equity funds or what sorts of industries they would be in. And I'm not sure if I could go into some office and ask. Some just say, show me where the money is going. So all I can say as of now is that where these equity funds were located is nowhere to be seen on the endowment yearly financials. But for these bond funds, you could see what company was managing the bond and what it was called. So you can find these bond funds out there on the internet and scroll through hundreds of lines of businesses and institutions that made up the holding for these bond funds. And sure enough, there they were. Enbridge, Centerpoint, Petrobras, oil companies in Qatar, Chenier, Jonah Energy, Genesis Energy, the list goes on. All natural gas drillers or distributors in the U.S. are abroad. And among all these various energy companies that these funds had holdings in, I found just three that invested in renewables, solar, and other alternative fuels. Three. It wasn't just that was Cal Poly was investing in oil drilling companies. There was also oil and natural gas infrastructure companies. We aren't just looking to invest more in drilling, but in expanding the infrastructure to continue providing this form of energy. Here, the story that the finances of large institution tells us is that their money is being used to support a certain view of the future. A view of the future where large energy companies' debt can be bought, bundled with other debt, and purchased by educational institutions for a future profit. Now, I'm no money manager or finance guru, so I wasn't sure what to think of it. There were just a few lines that explicitly were involved in fossil fuels of the hundreds, but this probably wasn't ideal either. So I asked my roommate Andrew, not Dr. Andrews, but the man with whom I share a sink and dishes, what's the deal? What should we think of this? Like whether Cal Poly should get out of these investments or not. Um, I can't say whether they will or if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, the only thing I can say is uh, it's like important to remember like the trade-off that you're making. There's like no one... Um, there's no one answer that's going to be better than the other. So let's say in an alternate world where Cal Poly gets out of all these various different investments and then they choose one that's more socially conscious of what the school believes is a 
now their best way of going forward. Um, let's say, theoretically, that those returns are going to be lower, um, which theoretically they should be as like a more constrained view of the world is going to offer lower returns than a more open view of the world. Um, just this is all theoretically. Um, if they do therefore get lower returns, um, that is going to mean that there's going to be less money that flows into Cal Poly and less uh, income through investments. And as we kind of talked about earlier, a lot of these investments, they, they go to research, they go to instruction, they go to student services, they go to building new buildings, they go to scholarships and grants. Um, this money doesn't just sit in the, in like the fairy world. This is very much directly impacts the students' lives. And uh, being able to kind of maximize those returns in a financially risk management world safely um, actually has a pretty big impact on the way that people interact with the university and uh, on the individual students' lives. These are just kind of the, the trade-offs that you have to think about. Um, it's not necessarily... So what do we do with all these stories? We've heard from insights of formal science, how framing an action in a way to appeal to a person's identity encourages those we might not expect to adopt work practices that are better for the planet, how mammal ecology and biology tells the story of response to a changing climate, the different ways we can harness local knowledge for communities to collectively address climate change, and we've heard from the voice of local policy making moves and changing the types of energy that powers our towns, and we've heard from our own student body on how they view their place in climate change and sustainability. But the stories are near endless, and each actor's story exposes three more and is influenced in ways we might not be able to see by other stories. The story I tell myself about climate change is influenced by marketing specific to me on reusable utensils, how only I can do something about waste, about a warming temperature, about the ocean, specific algorithms tailored to what I've looked for in the past showing me ads today. I'll read stories or watch a documentary about regulations that keep our water clean and, and keep corporations' pollutants limited being rolled back. And all of this will influence how I view this hairball of an issue. And with students' big suggestion of what it is we should do, the most important action we can all take is being aware. How can we be better aware when what we learn from this actor network is that how we perceive and respond to a problem is based on what we see and listen to, the impacts of which we may not always be so consciously aware to us. Maybe we need a better framework for how to listen to the stories we hear, what it is we can listen for or be aware of, how we can ask better questions of the stories we hear. So let's ask three questions, a who question, a where question, and a what question. First, who is telling the story? What are their goals? Like Dr. Brown said, every time we talk about people and climate change in the same sentence, we have assumptions, whether spoken or not, about how long we want people here for and what condition these people will live in. Second, where is the money coming from? How is it that this story got in front of my eyes? Is it a paid Google ad on your Google search or a sponsored post on Instagram? Where is the money coming from that funds the actor telling the story? A quarter of all climate science denial movements turns out to be funded by a single group, Donors Trust. They fund think tanks like the Heartland Institute, provides textbook-like accounts of reconsidering the science of climate change, and sent out to professors for free like our very own John Perrine. These groups are also the ones who write temple legislation for representatives to turn into law. Or what of an institution like Cal Poly with publicly undisclosed investments and bond funds that include fossil fuel drillers and providers in their portfolios? 
with professors even fearing to speak out publicly about energy providing polluters because of these companies' investments in Cal Poly. Money provides a platform. It provides an undeniably clear link between actors. And not all stories that arrive before your eyes get this money by forgivable means. What then is a story that uses no money to be told? Well, the stories of our non-human actors, a raising temperature of the earth, a growing number of carbon particles in our atmosphere. Money might be used to get the story in front of your eyes, but these stories are told in the still, small voices of nature, whether an ear is put to them or not, much like this podcast for that matter. Third, what are the tools they're using in their story? Now I'm going to throw a technical, actor networky term at you here, translation. How did the story get to you? Science generates findings, and those findings make their way into media coverage or legislation or a discussion you may have with a friend. And if that's true, if you're having discussions with your friends on uh, recent climate science research, you may be boring, but at least you're well informed. Now this is the process of translation, when a story, perhaps from science, gains momentum by other actors taking hold of the story and delivering it to a new group. What parts of the original story are focused on, seen as significant and valuable to this new audience? Whenever we find an easy-to-read graphic of statistics on a warming earth or animal species population or emissions in the atmosphere, we are witnessing a translation. We might not be able to comprehend the complex workings of the research it took to get that data before us, but we can be aware that there was a process, and in this translation, new batches of actors have hooked themselves onto an earlier story. We can be aware, then, of the steps of translation it took to find to this actor, to you and I. And we aren't here to assess if a story is true. We simply can recognize that each story holds a partial perspective, especially when that story is about something as complex as climate change. Translation happened to the story we hear to get it to us, money was necessary to get the story to us, and a specific person with a specific perspective, as objective as science may desire to make itself out to be, is delivering that story to us. To be quite clear, Awareness can't remain in starting a conversation. We hear a lot about this these days, especially on campus, about starting conversations on different subjects. And for a lot of interest areas, this is great. Having a new form of discourse is many times the first step towards transformation. But this is no longer conversation, this is a call to action. And in this case, it seems the call was unclear. What is it that we should be doing? As Greg Brown stated, and Danielle will also illuminate, sustainability, the great savior of our civilized society, and reinforced in marketing campaigns for new products and sales pitches to those who look to consume responsibly, has been co-opted. We don't know what's being sustained, we don't know how long, and we don't know in what condition. This call to action has been limited to a mere marketing term, but there is still a need for a call. To listen to the stories we hear more critically, being aware of how those stories got there through partial perspectives, through translation, and through financial power. We can better interpret when some institution or program gives us suggestions of individual actions like ban plastic straws for the environment, and that this might not be the best way of addressing a warming earth. Or when we see institutions we are a part of not taking as full an approach as we hope to limit emissions, or separate from structures of pollution, we can intelligently ask, where's the money? Your host today was me, Paul Gillis-Smith. Any studies or resources we cited will be on our website with links to lovely PDFs or web pages for you to peruse for your own endless enjoyment. We highly encourage you to do this, as we had a great time doing it ourselves. Findings from our own data can be found there as well, so you can check out our work if you think that what we're saying is just plain absurd. 
You can stay updated on future Make It Human goodies at our website, makeithuman.squarespace.com, and on Instagram at Make It Human Podcast. I promise you, we are almost done with climate change and have some good stuff after on how to, we think about celebrity. All our music today is just from good old pals, Austin Gandler or Life Grid, Nikki Gurney, Kyle Teske, and Chris Hecklenkemper. This is Make It Human. <laughs> Remember to just keep breathing, man. Sometimes you forget. <laughs>